Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today we're going to be talking a lot about cybersecurity attacks and definitely the journey of building, financing, and scaling a business. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rotem Aram. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So born and raised in Israel. So how was life growing up in Israel, Rotem? You know, it's interesting. I'm right at the bridge between Gen X and Millennial. So I had a, an analog childhood and a digital adolescence, I guess grew up i think israel in the 80s was a was a pretty still a uh, third world country in many ways but uh israel when i was 18 or 20 was already a a booming high-tech very digital place so it was a uh, you know i think i have a, a good perspective on that it was you know fun normal childhood i guess uh uh in israeli terms for sure and and why do you think in i mean israel at the end of the day if you were to compare it with the u.s probably not 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 that big right but but why such a such a small country like that, if you put it in comparison with the U.S., has such an, un, an entrepreneurial drive? I mean, there's so many entrepreneurs coming out of Israel. Why is that? I think there's there are, there are definitely things around the ecosystem where I think the Israeli uh, education is very much entrepreneurial in, in its spirit. Uh, and you, you can see it everywhere uh, in terms of kind of making your own success and your own luck. Uh, I think we have less respect to establishment and to establish systems for good or bad. It does, it's not necessarily better for running larger systems or even a government, but I think that people take a lot of ownership and, um, and feel like you know, anything is possible. I think the, the ethos of the country was to build something out of, uh, out of nothing uh, and it translates into the business environment. But I will also say that there's the fact that everybody goes into the military uh, means that you build very strong networks very early on. And the military, especially when it comes to cybersecurity, uh, is probably one of the most advanced places that, that you can be in. So you get to uh, be on the cutting edge of technology and at the same time build strong networks with incredible people that were handpicked to be running those uh, and building those those systems and technologies uh, next to you. And so when you come out, you have, you know, uh, you have an edge, definitely when it comes to security, you have the team ready. And, and then very quickly, just VCs came came over. And so, you know, Israel is the only place outside the U.S. Uh, now, with the exception of lately with India and China, that 
uh, all the big firms have had local presence. So, you know, Lightspeed and Greylock and Bessemer and Sequoia have hold, all had offices in, in Israel. And that just continued to put provide fuel kind of into the into the fire. And uh, and so with the success stories, more people became interested. And it just, you know, the the American dream dream is uh, is different than the Israeli dream. The Israeli dream is to is to build a company and sell it to the Americans. So that's where I grew up. That's amazing. I mean, and, and in your case, I mean, you definitely follow that direction of, of building strong networks. You joined the army at 18 and you were there for, for five years. But what, I mean, you've alluded to it a couple of times, you know, strong networks. Can you give us a little bit more insight into what that is and what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, look, for, for better or worse, I mean, we can talk about whether socially we think that 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 is uh, that is right for for the country but you know when i was 18 i was fortunate to be selected to the leadership program in the israeli intelligence uh, technology unit and uh, basically uh, you know the military has the ability to pick anyone from the entire country and so you i ended up with you know, my closest friends people that i've spent the next 5 years with you know sleeping bed one bed next to another in the same you know spending 24 hours a day together for five years, uh, there were some of the smartest people I've ever met and that have pushed me uh, more than I could have ever pushed myself and that went on to do incredible things themselves, uh, whether in technology or, or in business. And so I think it's an experience that is hard to replicate, even in, I think, kind of top private universities here in the US. You don't get the same amount of, it's not just building a network, it's, it's building deep friendships and in a in a in a pretty massive cohort of of, of really exceptional people that you can uh, tap into. So after after you you got out of the army uh, after five years, you decided to go into consulting with McKinsey. I mean, at this point, you already had that that engineering background with you. And engineering, at the end of the day, is all about resolving problems. And and consulting is pretty much the same thing, but with a different twist. So so in your case, how would you say that? your experience in the consulting side really shaped up a little bit more the way that you go into problems and really with the mindset of, you know, perhaps even breaking them down into smaller problems? I was always fascinated by solving problems, even from a, from a young age. I have, a, you know, my dad is a, was an engineer. And, you know, even when I was, you know, 10 years old and telling my dad that I want to build an underground secret headquarters, it, it immediately turns into a conversation about how many uh, trucks would you need to bring in to take out all the dirt. So you got to ca calculate the, the volume and how much volume per truck and how much is it going to weigh and how are you going to lift it. And so that was kind of the, I got the, the McKinsey bootcamp at home from a very early age. And, you know, I, I, I initially applied my problem solving passions into engineering uh, because I've always been passionate about security, about technology in general. Uh, but I found that I was a lot less excited about engineering problems than I was about larger business problems. And so, you know, I was an okay engineer, but I was a much better and more passionate, I guess, McKinsey consultant because at McKinsey, it was all about coming into a new space that you knew nothing about, ramping up quickly and trying to figure out, uh, asking like really deep uh, questions and and using insights to turn businesses around and, and, and create new, new opportunities. I, uh, that, you know, it was a, it was an incredible opportunity for me because not only like just working with great people on difficult problems, but also uh, the training of, 
around structured thinking and structured problem solving and and really kind of the the basics of how to communicate. It was a great school for that. You know, that passion, I always saw it as, you know, McKinsey was a great school, but then I wanted to apply it back into the world of technology because at the end of the day, I'm not, my personality is not the best fit for uh, being in professional services. I mean, I would much rather own and, and run a team or a business than uh, be consulting to somebody who does. And so that's that's kind of, I think uh, after business school, I, I was looking for more entrepreneurial ways for me to take ownership over over problems. So obviously here, I mean, it seems that, that you were happy doing what you were doing at McKinsey. So what prompted you to go to business school? Well, first of all, a lot of times I hear entrepreneurs say that everything was figured out and everything was planned. That was not necessarily the case for me. I was I played a lot of basketball growing up, and there's a there's a term in basketball called offensive awareness. And this is, do you know what is going on and where you are and what are the opportunities? And I think that that earlier on in my career, I had a low awareness. And I think McKinsey pushed me into, basically, the, the path in McKinsey is you got to go to business school if you want to advance McKinsey. So like, all right, I'll, I'll do that. What are the best business schools? And so I applied to those and or was fortunate to, to be accepted at Harvard. And once I was there, uh, they opened up the wor- my, my worldview even more. And I think the two things that Harvard does really well in the business school is uh, they make you believe that you can that you can do almost anything. So they recalibrate your ambition level and your confidence, and uh, and they open you up to a bunch of opportunities that you just never considered were were available. And and so even though going into business school, I was sure I was going to go back to McKinsey. By the time I left business school, I was sure I was not. Uh, and that was going to embark on a more entrepreneurial journey. So what do you think was uh, that event that really opened your eyes and you were like, no, no, I'm going to go on and go the entrepreneurial route? I think, so by the time I I was at business school, I felt like I was already a really good analyst. You know, when it came to crunching numbers and, and running models on Excel, you know, you can always get a little bit better, but I was already really, really good at it, I felt. And I felt that my next jump as a as as a person and and as a you know business leader would not come from becoming a slightly better analyst. It came from being able to harness uh, storytelling, uh, because one of the things I, I realized is that as you go up in seniority, it, the ability to tell compelling stories uh, becomes a lot more important than uh, than just being able to to run an accurate kind of analysis. And I felt that McKinsey was not going to be a place where I learned how to do that. You know, McKinsey would be a little bit more of the same. And uh, and so really what attracted me as I, I moved on to my next, my, the next step in my career was what is a place where I would get to be the one trying to, you know, sell the, sell an idea, uh, sell a story, uh, have a chance to interact with high level decision makers who do not necessarily have the time or the patience to go through a detailed analysis, right? Uh, how do you make a lasting impression in in two minutes, in five minutes? And uh, how do you get somebody to believe in you and trust you? And uh, and and that led me to my my next opportunity at K at K two, where uh, it was a on the one hand, uh, it was a an established startup built by a very credible and established entrepreneur in, in Jules Kroll, who previously uh, built Kroll and sold it to Marsh for about $4 billion, um, I think around 2006. Uh, and so when I joined, 
But on the other hand, they, they were asking me to build something that they didn't know how to build themselves, which was a cybersecurity practice, uh, because this was a new domain of risk for them. And so you know, they put me in front of their uh, clients at their network uh, to try and sell something completely new that I owned. Uh, and that was, to me, a, a really a great experience where I, I just learned a lot and, um, uh, and, and really kind of honed skills that previously I, 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 I don't think I've had as much focus on. I think that that's a very interesting point that you bring up because working with someone like Jules that had done it before, now he was doing it again. I'm sure that being able to work with him and 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 see the way that he's analyzing things, the way that perhaps he's looking at building and scaling, I'm sure that that also shaped up a little bit more your mindset towards perhaps that direction that you already seemed like you had decided in Harvard, which was to really build your own. So. So how was that experience with Jules? I mean, what were your biggest takeaways and your biggest lessons from from working with him? Yeah, I mean, first of all, uh, Jules and Jeremy, uh, founders of, of K2, were, uh, uh, were amazing to work with. And uh, there's t- taught me a lot about building a value-driven organization and, uh, and the, you know, the value of, of relationships. And I think that uh, it was trial by fire. Because they they put me in front of very early on, you know, I was still pretty young in my career, but you know, I got the chance to to be the one presenting to and and talking to uh, very senior, you know, CEOs of, of Fortune 50 companies or, uh, or or people with significant influence, and I had to uh, I had to be able to carry a conversation and and get and get the other party excited about what we were doing, and you know, I, I played a, a meaningful role in the investment that AIG had in our in our company that was around uh, cyber insurance, which I knew nothing about at the time, uh, but AIG was starting to look more seriously into cyber insurance. And the premise was that uh, through a partnership and an investment in K2, we would be able to help them better select and uh, price risk in cyber insurance. And that was a, a really interesting uh, experience that, that that really kind of got me to realize that there's a huge opportunity here and then led to to me going on my my own uh, my own journey with AppBay. So then let's talk about that. So at what point does the idea of AppBay, you know, come knocking to you and and you making the decision to really, you know, bring it to life? What was that process like? Yeah, so you know, it's again, it's uh, I initially I think as early as as 2014 I sent Roman, one of my co-founders, sent him an email. He was working for, you know, Roman and I uh, met at McKinsey and we both went to, to Harvard Business School together. He was doing his own thing in London, working for a, for a fintech company. And I, I wrote him an email in 2014 and said, like, I think there's something in this cyber insurance thing. But we were both too busy with our own jobs to really do anything about it. And it's not until I, I left K2, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I was, I was pretty convinced you know, I thought cyber insurance would be an interesting, interesting opportunity. But I, I was looking at other, a few other opportunities, and and really, I had an investor uh, from a large VC firm uh, approach me, and you know, she said like, "Look, I think, I think cyber insurance is like a real thing, and I think you could be a really good CEO." And and you know, she, she kind of really, uh, I guess, pushed the first domino, and. Uh, and we built, you know, we built a team together, and we went, uh, we went on to start the company. Even though I, I always felt that an entrepreneurial path would be, would be something I'd be good at. I, 
I wasn't necessarily actively pursuing it. You know, you uh, there are people who are just entrepreneurial in spirit and will just seek an, an opportunity until they found one, find one. I was McKinsey is the farthest away from from uh, from a startup as you can as you can imagine, and uh, I wasn't. I, I can't say that it was always in my stars. I I think what has happened was that I ended up. I found myself in a pretty uh, unique position where I was early to identify a really big problem and was credible uh, at doing it and got the the push and the support of others who believed that, that we could do it and uh, and we then we we kind of got started so I'm not I don't think I'm your typical uh, kind of entrepreneur story I uh, for for folks who are not deep into technology and uh, it's not common to identify a really big opportunity where you are very credible to solve it early on. And, but once I realized that that was the case, and once investors were, you know, very early on, investors were giving us like really credible term sheets uh, with almost, we had almost nothing. You know, we had maybe a deck, a 15 page deck, and have done no work really besides some, some research. And we're already getting some, some, some really good term sheets. So I was like, all right, this, this is actually real. And uh, this opportunity may not come again. So I, uh, I, you know, I jumped on it and uh, haven't looked back since. So then what's the business model of AdBase so that the people, you know, listening, you know, really understand it? Yeah. So AdBase is a cyber insurance company. We provide insurance uh, to companies against damages from a cyber attack or any disruption, excuse me, any disruption to their computer system, really. Uh, and it's already a pretty established line of insurance. It's, it's new and growing, but there's, you know, when we started, there were about close to a billion dollars in, in premiums already in this space. But what I have found is that the traditional insurance company is really at odds with this type of risk. Cyber risk is incredibly dynamic, where the insurance company uh, typically looks at, a, at risks that are very static, meaning you can leverage what you've learned about the risk last year to project how it's going to perform next year. So the uh, classic example is California is more likely to have an earthquake next year than New York because the underlying reason for an earthquake is pretty static. It's it's where faults uh, in tectonic plates are, and those don't move around much and and, and definitely not often, right? So uh, it's it's pretty likely to, to think California will continue to have more earthquakes than, than New York. Same thing goes with young drivers are worse than Old, than more experienced drivers, and it has to do with a bunch of factors, including their experience and probably the temperament of, of younger people. Uh, and that is probably not going to change next year. Uh, but cyber changes all the time. And as it changes, you need to, it, it really doesn't matter how the risk did last year. And we started AdBay with two, two core kind of hypotheses around cyber risk. One is that uh, you can learn a lot by, by, scanning and running a technical analysis on the security of a company, which is, again, something insurance companies just didn't know how to do. And really what we do at AtBay is we conduct a penetration test, which is a little bit like taking the vantage point of an attacker and trying to identify uh, holes in uh, the systems of our insurers that are so easy to find, even a really mediocre attacker would be able to take advantage of it and you know, to put it in. In other words, you know, it's kind of lucky this company hasn't been breached yet, and we just kind of stay away from those risks or 
help companies solve them before we provide them insurance. And the second more important uh, kind of principle uh, around at bay is active risk management. It, it means that even if a company is really good and has good security when you provide it with insurance, insurance is a year-long contract. And a lot of things can happen in cybersecurity in a year. And oftentimes, it is not the fault of the, of the company. Uh, you know, you, you're running, let's say, uh, Apache Strut servers. And those are those are great until there's a critical vulnerability in their current version, uh, and attackers are going to exploit it. And so we, uh, if something like this happens in the middle of a policy period, and it happens all the time, we uh, identify which companies in our portfolio have now huge vulnerabilities, and we help them fix those before an attacker exploits uh, those vulnerabilities. That was the the, the, the thesis of AdBay. Uh, we believe that combining a technical analysis and, and, a, and a proactive risk management approach allows us to dramatically lower uh, the risk of our portfolio so that we can offer better, better products, um, better coverage at lower prices. Uh, and, uh, but to do that, and to do that well, you need to be an insurance company. And so that's what we set out to build. And how much capital have you guys raised to date for Arbay? We raised about $91 million in four rounds. So, you know, end of 2016 was our seed round. That was about three and a half million. And uh, in 2020, we raised about $70 million uh, in kind of a B and a C round uh, that were kind of nine months apart from each other. That's interesting because typically when you're raising capital, it's in between, you know, at least 18 to 24 months. So, so what happened there? Well, a combination of two things. One was that just incredible growth to the business. You know, in the last two years, we've grown more than 60 times. So, you know, 10x in 2019 and another 6x in 2020. So just really strong growth, I think, propelled investors to recognize that we were building something special. Uh, and the other one was, I think we we definitely moved with, we executed in the Series C a lot earlier than, than what you would normally do uh, because coming into Q4 of 2020, we still didn't know who was going to be president of the U.S. Uh, coming November. We still didn't know if uh, if the other shoe was not going to drop with a uh, when it comes to the economy and and the the long longer term impacts of of COVID. And even though we had thirty million dollars in in cash in the bank, we felt that uh, given how much we have grown in just eight months, we can already kind of have significant increase to our valuation, more than 3x valuation in eight months and bringing an extra 30 million. So we didn't really go for a big Series C, but because we didn't feel we, we really needed it, uh, but an extra 30 million in, um, or 35 million in, uh, in Q4 helped us make sure that even if 2021 becomes a really bad year uh, from a fundraising perspective, we would be well capitalized to continue to take advantage of our opportunity. So in your case, you know, it, there's something really interesting that you did here on the, when you close the seed round, you actually asked your investors, what were some of the requirements to get to the Series A? This is something that, that people don't typically do. They just raise the money and then they think they, it's time to celebrate. Like in this case, you were really, uh, really mindful of the fact that raising money is just a stepping stone. It's not a, it's not, it's not a milestone. So, so how was that and, and what kind of response did you get from yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think that's, especially earlier on, uh, once you hit Series B and Series C, it really becomes a 
you know, a much clearer story around KPIs. You know, what does your sale look like? What is the efficiency? Some of the metrics around cost of acquisition, lifetime value, showing that you have a, a scalable go-to-market model. But earlier on, definitely Series C and Series A, uh, the actual milestones are a lot more kind of murky. And I think that originally when we raised our Series C, we were fortunate to be very early in uh, in a new, uh, I would say, kind of segment of, of fintech, which is insurtech. We were w- probably not the first, you know, the first uh, insurance companies, the Lemonade and Hippo and Root are kind of 2015. So we we're late 2016, but it's still early days in insurtech. And I think that the the bar on investing was a lot lower then than it is now. So for a lot of companies, even for a proper seed round, you sometimes need to already have some some customers uh, and definitely for an A round. But when we were starting, the fact that we were even going after this space was was enough to secure uh, seed financing. And I wanted to make sure that I knew what we needed to build because you know the, when you when you pitch for for funding, you're like, how are you going to spend your money? What's the plan? And so the plan is to hit a, a milestone that you think will take you to the next phase of the company. The well, what what I didn't anticipate is first of all, it's really hard. You even when you ask people what do you need, they they don't really give you the right answer. The only real answer is when they either write a check or don't write a check, right? Uh, it's the same thing with a sale. Like when you go and ask a customer, would you be interested in buying this? You know, sometimes they might say, yeah, sure, because they they're trying to be nice and they're trying to be encouraging. But when you actually ask them to take money out of their wallet and pay for something, that's when you get the real answer. And the same thing is with, uh, with investors uh, in a Series A, we asked our investors, "What do you need to see?" And they said, basically, if you can, if you can build the insurance vehicle so that you can actually launch an insurance product, that would be a, a major milestone, and and one where you can raise a Series uh, Series A. And that's what we did. And but then when we went to and then we went on our Series A kind of fundraising, and you know, first fifteen firms, you know, all Sand Hill Road, you know all said, you guys are, it's amazing what you're working on, but we need to see six months of sales before we can say yes or no, because we need to see some validation from customers, which in retrospect kind of makes sense, right? Uh, Probably shouldn't have been surprised. But uh, at that point in time, that felt we were were pretty late into our, our journey, didn't have a ton of cash left on our balance sheet or on our, on our, on our book. Uh, And you know, I was, that was actually maybe one of the most kind of hair raising moments for us as a company, because the risk of now going to market with a product that I have no idea how it's going to perform. Uh, and then betting, you know, if the performance is, is great, then that's great. You get a great series A, but if the performance is bad, we're, we won't have a, the time to fix it and change it because in insurance, any fixes to the product take six, nine, 12 months. So that was, that was a pretty scary moment for us. And you know, fortunately for us, we found um, an investor, uh, Keith Raboy. He was at COSLA at the time, now now at Funders Fund. But Keith was actively searching for a team to build a cyber insurance business. And when we came to Keith, he was like, I'm ready to go. I mean, I was looking for a team and you guys have already made kind of a year, a year and a half of progress. So uh, he uh, he led our Series A, you know, but in retrospect, I should not have uh, banked on having somebody uh, that was already primed uh, for what we were doing. And again, that is especially true if you're going into a space where 
most investors are not yet familiar with and not yet comfortable with. And for a lot of investors, what we did sounded appealing, but to to sponsor and to lead an investment in, in an insurance company was still very foreign to most of them. That's very interesting. So, so in this case, I mean, especially with what you guys are doing at AdBay, I'm sure that you've seen some some crazy stories and crazy attacks. So maybe there's like um, a story that you can share, you know, with our audience. And, and I think it will be also interesting for our audience to hear perhaps your recommendation on how they should be focusing their needs around cybersecurity. Yeah. So, you know, what attracted me about insurance is that I feel that insurance, an insurance company has a better shot at actually figuring out what matters in security than security company for only one reason. We're not smarter or know more about security than security companies, but we are the ones who pay uh, again and again and again. And we are the ones who need to make decisions in underwriting about what matters in security. And if we get it wrong, we will we will be the one to die, right? So we, we have the incentive to get it right. We have the, the, the capability to collect all the data that is needed. And when we do find something, we have the credibility to actually force credibility and the tools to force customers to comply. So when we tell customers that a certain configuration is very risky and we will not provide them with insurance unless they fix it, they tend to listen to us, which puts us in a really great position uh, to impact, in, I believe, uh, soon enough to actually standardize security in um, in the mid-market. I think, you know, I, we're, we're on a phone call, so I, I can only imagine that you probably have a smoke alarm system somewhere in your uh, in your apartment, and I think it's there probably not because you are extremely passionate about smoke alarm technology or the brand of the specific company, but rather because the insurance company uh, forces you to have one. And I think that that same dynamic is going to translate into cybersecurity. You know, what we're seeing by supporting every day is very different than what gets talked about in, in security uh, circles. In security circles, you talk about things that are exciting, like a Chinese military APT attack, uh, or advanced advanced attack against, uh, against organization leveraging really sophisticated technology. But what you see on the ground every day are very simple attacks. So let me give you an example of one of the more frustrating types of, of attacks that we're seeing all the time. We have a, we have a customer. Their name starts with the letter C O M, and then the re- I don't want to disclose the name of the company, but it starts with with the letter C O M. Somebody, an attacker, registered a domain that started with the words C O R N, and if you put R and N next to each other, they look very much like an M, right? And and then the rest of the name, just like the name of the company. So when you look at it at a glance, it seems like it's the domain name of the company, but it's actually Instead of an M, there's an R and an N. Anyway, you know they registered this new account, and two hours later, they sent an email to the financial controller of the company, uh, masquerading as the CEO, saying, "I need you to immediately send six hundred and forty thousand dollars to uh, this account right here. It's for one of our biggest uh, vendors." And you know they send it six hundred forty thousand dollars, and they lose it, and we have to pay for it. And I got to tell you. It's incredibly frustrating how simple and not sophisticated that attack was and how devastating it is for a small business and to their insurance company, but more, more so to, the, to a small business when they suffer uh, an attack like that. And, you know, it, email is probably one of the worst technologies that we are using today in terms of how easy it is to manipulate it uh, and how difficult it is to keep it secure, yet we do our most important, you know, 
we make some of the most important decisions over email. We send some of the most uh, sensitive information and we, and we approve wire transfers of millions of dollars all on email, uh, which is almost the equivalent of putting a money, you're putting money in a box and putting it on the side of the street and saying, please don't touch. This is money for, you know, my friend and just hoping nobody touches it. It's as ridiculous as this. So uh, that's something we put a lot of, of emphasis on with our, our insureds and uh, making sure they have the right configurations uh, around email security and, and the right security devices. I can tell you that a lot can be done without spending money. Current, whether you're using Microsoft Office or, or Google for your email, there are a lot of configurations that are turned off by default. And if you turn them on, you immediately become a much safer, you become a lot safer from, uh, from an attack. And we just help companies realize that those, those opportunities exist and try to help them uh, become safer. That's interesting. And, and in this case, uh, Rotem, imagine that um, the vision of at bay is fully realized one day. What does that day when you wake up look like? I think that, you know, at every part of every business is becoming uh, driven and dependent on technology. So technology becomes the biggest risk to the business. And I think at bay is building the core competency of, of understanding the relationship between technology and risk to the business, which will allow us to become uh, the next generation of commercial insurance, uh, which I think today is mostly within cyber insurance, but I think that at some point, every piece of the risk to the business has a meaningful technology element in it. And Adby would be in a great position to to become a, a more competitive and, and, just, and just more insightful partner, uh, to be honest. And then leveraging our knowledge and our understanding to help standardize and answer some of the most important questions in cybersecurity. One of them is, what should I be using? How much should I be paying? Which type of technology uh, makes sense for, for my business? What are the risk trade-offs that I'm making by choosing configuration A or configuration B? But also, and maybe even more importantly, is providing accountability and feedback to the software vendors themselves who are essentially creating software that is full of holes and have today no reason to fix it. This is a, a much bigger topic that I'm not sure we can get into today. But, you know, the at the end of the day, you as a company, you are purchasing or licensing software from vendors. And, and that's and because of either mistakes or uh, lack of, uh, of attention, that software is full of holes that attackers can exploit, and the software vendors has absolutely no viabil- uh, liability on uh, on the outcome of uh, of how attackers exploit those holes. It's the equivalent of you walking into your car and realizing while you're driving that the brake system isn't working, only to find out that the company, the software company that built the brakes. Uh, issued on their blog post a note that says that they have now have a critical vulnerability in their brakes and you need to download a patch yourself and fix it. They're not going to recall the card. They're not going to make sure you know about it. There's no regulator to force them to do anything about it. You just need to read their blog. But instead of having one manufacturer for your car, you have a car with 500 different parts from 500 different manufacturers. And now, even though you have a small business, now you need to, if you want to drive a car, you need to have a full-time person just staying up to date with all these these issues. I think that that's probably not the right balance for where we are as an as an ecosystem and one that I I see only the insurance company is being able to help 
fixed because we can we can tell a customer if you want to use this software company that's great but just so you know they are notorious for having issues and therefore your premium is going to be higher uh, and now uh, that company that software company needs to decide whether they want to be known as the company that doubles your your insurance premium that's amazing so so the the last question that I want to ask you and this is the question that I ask all the guests that come on the show is if I put you in a time machine and you have the opportunity in this case to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Rotem that is thinking about making the jump from K2 to launching your own business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching the company and why based on what you know now? Yeah, I think that you know my most important lesson was that there's nothing more important than understanding the customer and validating that that this thing can be can be sold. So I came from a very, let's call it an intellectual background around problem solving, right? You think you have a better understanding of what needs to be done, and then you create what you think is a better solution. But if it cannot be sold in the field, if your customer doesn't appreciate it, then you've not created value. Value is only created when somebody's willing to pay for it. And not understanding who your customer, not designing for your customer is useless. Uh, and I think that early on at AdBay, we, you know, we were not quick enough to either learn ourselves or honestly, if I needed to give myself an advice, bring in somebody who knows the customer uh, really well as early as possible or do it yourself, right? But you have to know who the customer is because our initial product were, even though the the concept was 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 great and has been validated since then, the application of it was just wrong for the distribution channel and the decision maker. And I think that just the realization that if if you that it has to be something you can sell is is one that didn't come natural to me in in the beginning, and it's probably was has been my my most important kind of has been the most important lesson for me. Very profound. And for the people that are listening, Rotem, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I'm on Twitter. I got handle is at Rotem Iran. That's uh, R O T E M I R A M, or through our website. I'm uh, and 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 my LinkedIn, obviously. Amazing. Well, Rotem, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.